About a month ago, the Financial Times reported that the U.S. government had privately taken a more assertive stance in recent weeks on backing the confiscation of roughly $300 billion in frozen Russian sovereign assets to provide an alternative funding stream for Kyiv. The news comes amid faltering efforts in Europe and in Washington to approve the budgetary allocations needed to sustain aid for Ukraine, which presumably makes it even more attractive to force Russia to foot the bill. Kiev's most ardent supporters in the West say the seizure of the immobilized Russian state assets is long overdue. In fact, that the seizure hasn't happened already is both alarming and confounding to many people. So let's talk about what's keeping the West from grabbing this Russian money and what it will take for the confiscation to go ahead. That's the subject of this week's show. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock. You're listening to Medusa's only English-language podcast, The Naked Pravda. If you're not already a contributor to Medusa, please consider visiting our website to learn more about our crowdfunding operation. We're coming up on our first anniversary of our undesirable organization status, which outlaws our operations in Russia and effectively renders us news media pirates. My two-year-old recently poked me in the eye, and I was even wearing an eye patch for a couple of days, so the pirate thing is the real deal, folks. Another real deal is the momentum behind the initiative in the West to seize roughly $300 billion in frozen Russian assets and transfer that wealth to Ukraine for urgent military defense and ongoing reconstruction efforts. Moscow certainly takes this seriously. On January 19th, sources familiar with the thinking in the Russian government and the Russian central bank told Reuters that Moscow is even considering a total diplomatic break with the so-called unfriendly nations as a potential response to the seizure of its assets in the West. Of course, Russian officials would also likely confiscate any privately owned Western assets that are still stuck in Russia. Russia's foreign ministry says the confiscation of its frozen assets in the West would amount to 21st century piracy, which isn't the kind of piracy I was talking about earlier, but it's a theme now, so let's just run with it. So, our matey, my first guest this week is Alexander Kaliander who's written extensively about this subject as a journalist, economist, and political analyst. You can find his recent work at The Bell, and he's got plenty of bylines at The Wall Street Journal. Now, I want to get to my interview with Alexander, but first, and I apologize deeply for this, I must present a brief word about gold and foreign currency reserves, which my guests discuss at length, but I'll summarize first in my own layman's terms just to get the ball rolling. These reserves are foreign assets that central banks around the world use as a kind of safety cushion in case of economic crisis. In difficult times, this money serves as a rainy day fund to maintain liquidity, allowing central banks to step in and exchange that foreign currency for the local currency, ensuring that companies can still import and export competitively. It can also be crucial for stabilizing your currency, paying foreign debts, reassuring foreign investors, and other stuff like that. Most of these assets are held abroad, mainly in the form of investments and securities. This is a common global practice, and the U.S. dollar has been the world's primary reserve currency since the end of WW2, thanks to the size and the strength of the U.S. economy and the dominance of U.S. financial markets. The Russian central bank's main reserves are in euros, U.S. dollars, and Chinese yuan at 33.9%, 21.5%, and 17.1%, respectively. Even before February 2022, Moscow was actively pulling away from the dollar and investing more in China's currency to diversify the risks for Russia's reserves. Medusa reports that the Russian authorities hope to maintain the current ruble exchange rate until Putin's re-election in March. Lots of things are now revolving around the March election. 
To this end, the central bank is again busy in the foreign exchange market and is buying and selling Chinese yuan as needed. So the first question I had concerns the 300 billion or the roughly 300 billion dollars in frozen Russian assets in the West. And I wanted to know what exactly is this money? Where is it? Actually, it's a very good question. And there was no answer to that question about two years ago when uh, the Western countries decided to freeze Russian money. So basically, the main chunk of uh, those money, I would say about 90% of that, is what is called Russia's sovereign assets. In other words, it's what economists call FX reserves or foreign exchange and gold reserves of the Russian Federation. So technically and legally, this money doesn't belong to the government. It belongs to the state, uh, but as a nation, not a state as an institution, because otherwise it would be extremely easy to arrest it. So this money belongs to the central bank, it belongs to the Russian nation, and uh, usually the sovereign assets are considered to be the safest and the sacred part of the international financial system. After the war started, uh, the Western countries imposed several restrictions on Russian financial system. So first of all, they have frozen all the Russian sovereign assets saved outside of Russia in the countries that uh, supported uh, those measures. Which means that uh, Russian Central Bank uh, was kind of deprived of uh, almost all of its uh, dollars and euros. Simply because dollars and euros have been invested in, I don't know, T-bonds, German government bonds, or uh, French government bonds, or even some corporate bonds. But they are all, all those bonds are registered and saved in various foreign institutions. And some of that assets in liquid money are saved on your, uh, you, you may think on your usual deposit account, usually interest-bearing deposit accounts, which are also uh, placed in foreign banks. Only small amount of um, euro and dollars are accessible or have been accessible for the Russian Central Bank. So, summing up, Russian uh, FX reserves are somewhere around $600 billion, of uh, which roughly one-half is frozen abroad, and uh, about one quarter or somewhere around it is saved in physical gold, which leaves the central bank uh, with uh, roughly $150 billion, uh, give or take, which is mostly denominated in a Chinese renminbi. And that's why when the central bank needs to, you know, support uh, the ruble or when it needs to take extra uh, ruble liquidity from the market, it uses Chinese renminbi. Also, but it's a much smaller part, uh, we see Russian private money arrested in, uh, abroad, those money invested through uh, various investment institutions inside the country in uh, European and American assets, namely bonds and shares, which are saved on various trading uh, accounts abroad and also some of uh, corporate savings which are also arrested. Is it significant that so much of the frozen Russian 
assets in the West is concentrated in this Belgian financial services company, Euroclear. And also the fact that that, uh, Belgium's beginning a six-month stint as the leader of the presidency of the EU Council. It seems as though the West is going to have a bunch of negotiations regarding what to do with these frozen Russian assets over the next few months, and Belgium is going to be in this key role, and it also is the is the location of so much of these assets. Expect that to play out. And let's step back, and first of all, let us understand why uh, why this money is in Belgium. It's not that uh, the Russian central bankers decided, oh, Belgium, what a wonderful country, lovely chocolate and beer, let's save all our assets there. It was a little bit different. Doesn't sound like the worst place to put your money. <laughs> uh, well, yes, but, you know, they probably have other issues to worry about. So when you buy foreign shares or foreign bonds, you need to place them somewhere. And Belgium happened to be the home of, uh, of the largest European clearinghouse. Clearinghouse, you may think of that as a place where you register all the stock market dealings and where you keep all your trading accounts. So because it was so huge, so useful, and so safe, many banks and many investment institutions, including Russian Central Bank and many other central banks, decided to buy and sell and keep their accounts at this uh, year clear. So by far, Belgium is the home for the largest share of Russian sovereign assets. Then comes France, where, as we know, some tens of billions are saved on the Banque de France interest-bearing accounts and possibly on the trading accounts, also invested in some government bonds and uh, other uh, financial instruments. And then it is Germany, Switzerland, Luxembourg, Japan, and other places. And the irony of all the story about Russian assets is actually twofold. On the one hand, we have kind of a logical moral idea, which is, in my view, pretty clear from the moral point of view, that it is somehow bizarre that uh, Russia is waging a war against Ukraine, and it doesn't hide its understanding of this war as a war against, as uh, Moscow calls collective West or Western Europe, uh, plus the United States, Canada, and all the Western countries. But at the same time, Russia continues to keep its money in those countries. And on top of that, it actually earns a bit of interest. This interest is not, uh, you know, exorbitant, but we are talking about something like three to four billion dollars a year, which is not a small beer, even when we consider the amount of aid to Ukraine. So the proponents of the idea of taking this money out uh, from Russia and give it to Ukraine and or to the Ukrainian effort actually voice exactly that moral issue that we cannot help Russia earn money and promise to keep uh, its money safe while Russia is waging war against us and we are struggling to find financial resources to you know to buy arms and support the Ukrainian economy so from the uh say logical point of view this argument is you know pretty solid however as everything in this uh, world nothing is so simple because uh then come those people who say that okay it's all right it's all morally applaudable but taking the sovereign assets uh, from a nation uh, with which we are not 
in a state of war would be uh, an act of international financial arsonism. It would bring some absolutely unknown and unpredictable results to the international financial system and to the international practice of private or rather private and state property. There is a middle way for that, which we can see in the G7 and the EU resolution, which says that Russia should not expect and Russia will not get this money back until it signs a deal with Ukraine, which involves reparations and financing of all the war destruction with which Ukraine would be happy. In other words, we are talking about some pretty distant future, most probably with a um, different regime uh, in Moscow. To understand better why the West struggles to reach a consensus on seizing Russia's frozen sovereign assets, I welcomed back Maximilian Hess, the founder of Enmatena Advisory and a fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Max was also a guest on The Naked Pravda last October to discuss his recent book, Economic War, Ukraine and the Global Conflict Between Russia and the West. The most active supporters of confiscation are in countries where you find the fewest Russian assets are held. And this is the U.S., the U.K., the Baltic states, Central European nations, but then France, Germany, other countries are more reluctant to confiscate those assets. Why is it that there's this division in the West? Some of the Eastern European countries that are very uh, supportive of these kind of measures, you know, whether that be Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, of course, there are actually a lot of Russian assets in those countries. You know, they have been much more strongly supportive of Ukraine because of their own security concerns. But you know, Russian individuals have used Latvian banks in particular, uh, Lithuanian banks owned houses on the beaches there in Dramala and some other places. You know, these places might not be as internationally well-known as the south of France. They don't have Hollywood movies made about them going back to the 1950s and, you know, decades of tourism promotion in the same way. Um, but certainly there are lots of Russian assets in those countries. These ultimate financial assets are really in Belgium and, and some in the UK as well and a few other ways because of the plumbing of the system. And of course, this plumbing was established when those countries were still in the Soviet Union or... Uh, um, behind the so-called Iron Curtain in the Warsaw Pact, so the plumbing was not built through them. But are different national economies exposed to different degrees to the disruption that might be caused by seizing these assets? Are there differences in national interests here, or is it just politics that, that's not explained by economics here that, that, that explains why there's any resistance at all to confiscating these assets. Most immediate impact would be felt on Belgium because these large plumbing institutions would, would no longer be as favored. And of course, the U.S. would have the most to lose because it is the, obviously the most dependent on uh, the special status of the dollar. And that's in my argument, you know, in my view, where a lot of the U.S.'s geopolitical power comes from is the dollar, right? We saw this since the Biden administration's secondary sanctions threat uh, back in December. So just to give listeners a little bit of insight, that threat was secondary sanctions are that if you are a institution with no direct connection to the United States, but you are still doing things that violate the U.S.'s sanctions, Biden signed an executive order around December 8th uh, that now means the U.S. is willing to use that as an excuse to cut you off from the U.S. financial system. And because of that, we've seen a lot of Turkish banks and Chinese banks that were willing to process some trade uh, and other relations with Russia cut out that business. But over Overall, if I'm correct, um, I think the 
broad story is really just politics, not that any of one country is particularly more likely to be impacted than another. Yes, if you are a anti-US politician in, in Germany or another place, you might say that, well, going along with this means that we lose the opportunity in the future to build up the euro as a, as a rival zone. Uh, but my argument would be the tacit understanding between the US and Europe, even if our politicians on both sides of the Atlantic are very bad at seeing it, is that uh, Europe doesn't challenge the United States on these matters, right? We saw that with, although the European countries, in my opinion, rightfully so, were very angry about the Trump administration's unilateral reimposition of sanctions on Iran uh, with the withdrawal from, from what was the Iran deal, also known as the JCPOA back in, in 2017, you know, they didn't try to build up their structures to go around that are like, but the, you know, there are some politicians in Germany, the AFD, uh, Alternative for Germany, some right-wing politicians in the UK who still think that the British pound can be something like it was under the great imperial heyday when it played the role most similar to the role the dollar does today, who who might argue that this limits their ability there in, in the future. But uh, certainly, I think in mainstream politics, it really comes down to different perceptions of this fear and understanding of the issue rather than looking to protect their own economic interests. On the subject of fear, I asked Alexander Kleander, why Western countries have been unable after all this time to agree on when and how they should transfer the frozen Russian assets to Ukraine. They are just afraid. So what are they afraid of? They think that when this money is taken away from Russia, other countries or institutions would think twice before investing any of their financial resources in European assets, state debt, which is pretty important for all the Western countries who are in the need of uh, investors in their domestic debt and uh, in uh, European stocks and shares. I think that this fear alone is a little bit blown out of proportion because for any uh, responsible investor, be it a private investor or the state fund or whatever, uh, the first bow should have, should have told back in 2022 because from from point of view of, of an investor, it doesn't matter whether this money is um, taken away or arrested. It's not good. It's not what you want with your investment. China, as we know, is trying to invest less and less in the U.S. and European assets, but they have their own idea and their own vision of how to use their national savings. And other, as for the other countries, we haven't seen any... Uh, flight from uh, the European or American bonds or other uh, sorts of uh, property in the past uh, uh, almost two years. So I think that part is a little bit overblown. However, it would create a legal uh, precedent of taking money away from a country with which you are not in a state of war. And yes, I would imagine that the rulers of uh, certain countries would have one or two sleepless nights thinking of uh, what would cost us or what would cost it to our national savings if uh, we decide to dissolve um, a dissident in ACID next time. It might uh, bring us some financial problems. But in my view, they should have thought about that two years ago. My other guest, Maximilian Hess, told me roughly the same thing when I asked him about these risks. 
the perceived threats um, to what this does to the idea that Europe and the West, and in particular, uh, what I call the dollar system, uh, the sort of international economic order as I see it. Uh, this is the fear that some like Nicholas Mulder and his op-ed for the Financial Times have spoken about that, oh, well, China and others won't want to hold Western assets anymore. I certainly agree that the biggest you know, threat we saw to that was with the sanctioning in the beginning and the fact that these assets are frozen and, and Russia can't use them. And we didn't see anybody move to dump the dollar or other assets, uh, including Belgian assets and the like. Yes, the bottom line is uh, the European Central Bank and even the uh, U.S. Treasury, they are not completely against that based on their fears. They just want a more precise and more deep assessment of uh, uh, the possible results of opening this Pandora box. So this is kind of a legal and big fear. There is another fear that if foreign investors pull out the money, which I don't think they would, or if they bring their money with less desire to the European and American markets, that would increase the cost of borrowing because you would see uh, fewer investors and uh, less of demand. And that would drive the cost of borrowing up. And with that, that would drive uh, inflation up in the Western countries. This year is much more real, but I suppose that's what the central banks are waiting for in the um, assessments. The U.S. dollar has been the international uh, currency of uh, last resort uh, and the credit market that sort of supports the rest of the world. And for anybody who's taken a, uh, you know, basic economics class, um, one of the things they'll learn about, and trust me, you know, I know, I know this stuff is, is complicated, confusing, even to me it is sometimes, is about current and capital accounts, right? This balance of accounts. So the current account is your trade, right? So a country uh, like Russia that exports a lot of commodities has a positive current account, basically. It, it earns more money from exports than it spends on imports is the simplest way to think about it. The capital account is the opposite. They're meant to balance. Um, they don't always. The U.S. famously runs d uh, uh, dual deficits, which fiscal hawks and right-wingers will criticize a lot, and the modern monetary theorists and the others say this proves that our old models don't work. But what happens is when your current account grows, um, your capital account goes into deficit. And basically what that means is you're, you're a net borrower from the world. Um, now, in Russia's case, for example, where it's cut off from these markets, it's these borrowings aren't the kind of bonds or long-term loans we think about, but are almost like trade finance, right? The Chinese um, are financing a lot of trade with Russia or those involved in the uh, sale of discounted Russian oil to India, for example. Effectively, these are short-term um, you know, credit relationships. But all of the countries in, for example, the BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, leaving aside South Africa, because sadly it's in a very weak economic position, but you know, those are all countries that earn uh, large uh, current account surpluses. They sell more than, than uh, they import. This is, of course, you know, the criticism of China very often is, oh, you know, they're, they're selling all their goods to us for cheap and we're not selling them as much in return. Um, but what that means is that those kind of countries need deficit markets to go and invest that large amount of uh, current account surplus that they have. Now, in the modern world, there are only two large, very stable deficit markets. Now, well, we can argue about the U.S.'s stability, um, you know, certainly not 
now that uh, election season is on. But uh, because of its role, at least markets treat U.S. assets as if they're super stable. And Europe, because of its political differences and the inability of Germany in particular to agree to common European debt, means there's not as large of a stock out there. But what this means is that those countries that earn current account surpluses uh, need to go and invest their markets. And there's a reason why rich Chinese businessmen, Russian businessmen businessmen from the Middle East, and women, of course, um, like to buy houses in Mayfair or property in the south of France or apartments in New York City or invest in U.S. companies or uh, U.S. debt. Um, China is the world's largest holder of that, despite you know the, the geopolitical tensions um, that, that have existed for the better part of the last decade. And that's because of exactly this current capital market imbalance I have. Now, if the West is united, and this is what I argue about so often, why, what is the real core of the relationship uh, between the U.S. And, and, and Europe, there is no other deficit market that exists right now. So even if China is really angry about Russia having been sanctioned in the first place, which I certainly don't think it's as angry as some people argue, or if it does see this as an escalation, or the Saudis do worry about it because they don't want their wonderful properties in Mayfair, the south of France getting seized, um, or their treasury holdings, um, then they just don't have another option other than those two. Um, you know, the market doesn't exist. There's no more, you know, gold, sure, people still hold and has done well as an investment in the last year, but no country can realistically run its monetary policy on, on gold today. Is the U.S. dollar guaranteed to be in this position uh, for the rest of our lifetime? Certainly not. Um, is it something that I think in the next two, three, four, five years uh, one needs to worry about? No. And the biggest risk to it is actually not from this idea of a BRICS currency or anything like that, but is from divisions between the U.S. and Europe. Because if all of a sudden you have pro-Russian parties in power in Germany, France, um, uh, Italy, other places, then, you know, that market becomes an alternative where it's the euro that could be the real challenger to the dollar, in my view. But of course, this is an effort where the West is working on on unity together, and a lot of the European countries are are even stronger advocates of uh, of this measure, particularly those in the Baltics and in Eastern Europe, um, that than uh, the Biden administration has been so far. So I would argue that yes, you know, there's some you know short term threats, and and it could increase some of those perceived risks over the long term, but because of the increased importance of unity on these kind of policies between Europe and broadly the Eurozone, um, the UK and, and, and the United States, um, that actually uh, this addresses that concern. A few numbers for you here, dear listeners. According to the Kiev School of Economics, only 349 Western companies have left Russia completely, and nearly 700 have suspended operations in Russia, while more than 1,600 continue to operate as before. Last summer, the newspaper Novaya Gazeta published an investigation estimating that the Western companies that remain in Russia throughout 2022 paid 288 billion rubles in profit taxes that year, which constituted about 1% of the federal budget's total revenue. Corporations like PepsiCo, the French energy company Total, and others increased their net profits considerably that year. Another fear is that Russia might, and I'm absolutely sure Russia will, retaliate. So how can Russia retaliate? It can arrest and nationalize, and uh, the Kremlin said that in so many words, all the unfriendly private property in Russia. 
And despite the much advertised and reported stories of household names pulling out of Russia, we know that many companies are still pretty active in Russia. They consolidate uh, their profits in Russia. They include Russian assets in their annual and quarterly reports. And while then uh, they do not see Russia as an extremely a profitable part of their business, they still get money from that. And some of them do not want to, and some of them are unable to pull out, simply because, as you know, to pull out of Russia is not so easy. You have, basically, you have to forfeit about 60% of the fair price uh, of your assets. And on top of that, uh, sometimes uh, you are unable to take this money out, because all the proceeds would be capped at the special S accounts, as for special, of the Russian Central Bank. That's what happened with so many foreign-owned OFDs. OFDs is ruble-denominated uh, state debt, of uh, which about one quarter was owned by the foreigners. It was, it was heavily invested by international investment funds and uh, hedge funds and uh, pension funds because it, it was such a nice uh, investment vehicle and people trusted it and then in february 2022 uh, they th those investors suddenly realized that uh, it is next to impossible to dispose of their assets those assets are sanctioned by the west but they cannot uh, sell them in russia because even if they sell it well, as foreigners, they cannot sell it, but even if they do, they will end up uh, with rubles, which uh, they cannot convert or take out of the country. In February 2023, here's how Bloomberg described Western assets stuck in Russia. Stock dividends, interest payments on bonds, and anything else that Western investors didn't sell before the war, it's all part of the pile of money that's been trapped by sanctions. Legally, the money belongs to some of the biggest investment houses like J.P. Morgan Asset Management and Schroeder's PLC, but privately, most acknowledge there's no hope of recovery. Maximine Hess also told me that getting this money out of Russia is hopeless. But he goes a step further and argues that lobbying efforts aimed at recovering this wealth are also prolonging Western negotiations on confiscating Russian assets and getting them to Ukraine. He singled out Raiffeisen Bank for the wishful thinking, he says, that underpins its plans for repatriating its technical profits in Russia. What I would say is right now, if you're a Western investor holding assets in Russia anyway, you have huge problems actually repatriating any of the profits from that. And perhaps the best example of that is an Austrian bank called the Raiffeisen Bank, uh, Raiffeisen Bank in non-German, which is the largest bank serving um, the process of sending money from Russia to the West right now. Uh, it's, you know, obviously its subsidiary there is not affected by the SWIFT sanctions. Ukraine has been very critical of it, but Austria got Ukraine to remove this bank from its sponsors of the war list in the last um, sanctions expansion in December. And yes, they have billions of dollars in technical profits there, well, actually in rubles, just converted into dollars. Um, in theory, they're worth a lot more, but they've had huge issues getting them out. And they've tr tried to strike two deals to get them out. Uh, 
firstly, a swap of assets with some of Sparebank's frozen assets, and then most recently, uh, a deal with Oleg Deripaska uh, um, to take a stake in an Austrian construction company that he owns uh, in exchange for these Russian rubles. So he'd get them, and in exchange, they'd get uh, his share in this company called Strabag, uh, an Austrian construction company. All of that needs sanctions approval from sanctions authorities uh, in the West. That hasn't happened yet. And of course, would need approval uh, from the Kremlin uh, as well, which also hasn't come. But yes, there could be plenty more like that. But I use that example to show that even those who are making paper profits in Russia right now can't repatriate that cash and rubles and bring it internationally. And lots of others have even written down their assets in Russia. You know, we saw that in particular in the beginning. Uh, and at the same time, and, and this is personal opinion more than analytical, those companies who are still counting on getting their money out of Russia, one, I think are poorly advised or being foolish. Uh, or secondly, I think are, are uh, actually, if they're still investing, directly supporting the war effort. And certainly the, the West should have or the Russian war effort. Uh, and certainly the West um, shouldn't take... Uh, Western companies who support the Russian war effort, um, no matter how indirectly they claim it is, they shouldn't take their considerations um, too seriously in making policy. Do you think it's inevitable that the West is going to seize these assets outright, these frozen assets? They won't just be frozen, they'll be seized and then sent to Ukraine or spent some other way. That's inevitably going to happen. There'll be a debate. I think the jury is still out. Well, first of all, we can see that uh, the, uh, the Western countries are unable to agree on even how to tax uh, the capital gain from their assets. If you invest in bonds, then you receive coupons and you receive money when the bond matures, which brings you uh, hard cash, which then is reinvested and there is a capital gain and there is a profit. Otherwise, what's uh, the reason to invest anything? And the law, the current law, taxes uh, those capital gains. And we know that was uh, the issue of uh, what to do with the capital gain of arrested assets many decades ago. There was a fearsome discussion in the British Parliament back in the 90s on what to do with uh, Colonel Gaddafi's uh, funds after Lockerbie. And they couldn't agree on how should they tax it and where the proceeds would go. And that, that was a pretty difficult uh, solution at that time. This time, it's even, it is even more difficult because technically, by the international law, just some extra context here. Muammar Gaddafi ruled Libya for 42 years. Estimates vary, but the late despot reportedly stashed billions, maybe tens of billions of dollars around the world. In fact, just last May, Italy's financial police seized another 20 million euros worth of his family's properties, including stakes in Italy's largest bank. In December 1988, in what became known as the Lockerbie bombing, a bomb aboard a transatlantic flight exploded over the Scottish town, killing 250 people on the plane and another 11 on the ground. Gaddafi ultimately took responsibility for the bombing and paid compensation to the victims' families in 2003, but he maintained that he had not ordered the attack. He met his own gruesome end in October 2011. Or by any property investment law, whatever your investment gains is yours. You have to pay the tax on the capital gain, and that tax goes to the coffers of the government where you keep your investment, as it happens with your private investment fund. So what uh, the Belgian government did, they promised that, that this money would not go to the state budget, but would go to a special fund helping Ukraine. But what we are talking about, about 25% of the capital gain tax. There is an idea of um, introducing a special windfall tax 
And that's all the uh, proceeds with 100%. I personally think it's a smart idea. It doesn't change the laws on investment. It doesn't change the property law. It doesn't change the foundation of the investment. But it imposes a special tax on that investment in this particular case. However, the Western countries are unable to agree on that still. Why? I think because, A, they are not entirely sure what that would do to the overall investment climate. They are not sure whether Russia would retaliate and consider that as a seizure of its rightful assets. And thirdly, because um, some other players want not to limit themselves to that uh, capital gain only, but they want uh, to take the principal, the $300 billion. Alexander also explained the risks inherent in transferring the frozen Russian assets to Ukraine, which is something the West is undoubtedly weighing as negotiations press on. There is very little support for the idea of taking all this money and give it to Ukraine right away. The reasons for that are, well, first of all, as we've just discussed, it is all invested, and Ukraine doesn't need T-bonds. It doesn't need German government bonds. It needs dollars and euros. So to support Ukraine, you need to sell all that. And, you know, selling 300 billion dollars of um, commercial papers wouldn't help the market. So uh, you need to do it in installments over some pretty prolonged time and inform the market. How how long is prolonged? I have no idea. (laughs) That I leave it to the uh, national government of how they do it. But that would actually send um, a signal to the markets that, hello, we will have 300 billion worth of uh, government bond supply in the next, I don't know, month, year, whatever. So every fund would count that in, and that would definitely affect, I suppose, to a smaller fact that we didn't know, but that would affect the cost of borrowing. Nobody wants it. Issue number two, nobody wants to give uh, this money in one huge suitcase to Ukraine. A, because there is a corruption issue, you know, let's call a spade a spade. Secondly, because if you give all the money to Ukraine to buy, I don't know, arms, uniforms, and support the national economy, that would eventually push the prices up. And it's not in anyone's interest to, uh, to have that, apart probably from those who uh, sell those things. So uh, there are several smart ways on how to use this money to help Ukraine. They are all uh, floating around the idea of issuing some kind of a debt or bond secured by those uh, $300 billion uh, worth of assets. I know of uh, at least two ideas of how to do it, but it is all basically down to the idea of let's use uh, those $300 billion as collateral and then uh, sometime in the future, Russia would accept it um, as its debt and uh, settle the debt, or um, we'll find some other way to pay back the owners, the buyers of the bonds, but we'll figure that out in the future. And uh, there is a reasonable answer to that, that Russia would never accept this debt and uh, all this um, uh, wonderful bond idea 
is defaultable from day one, you know, probably it's right, but let's not forget that back in the 1990s, I think, or a little bit later, Russia finally settled its debt on the pre-revolution uh, uh, bonds on which Bolsheviks defaulted back in 1918. And uh, as history tells us, there was a small chance, but still a chance, of settling this debt back in the mid-twenties. Uh, so when you need money, you are more keen to talk about your old debts, or in this case, debts of your ancestors or your father. So generally, I suppose that the idea of issuing some kind of a debt uh, backed by those uh, frozen Russian assets is a pretty workable idea. It would all be down to the uh, European central banks and politicians and uh, uh, European financial institutions to work this idea out. And it cannot be decided without Belgium, because by the Mm, you know, quirk of the fate. This money is uh, based in the wonderful country of beer and chocolate. And uh, the Belgian government is uh, standing for election, or basically the parliament is standing for election uh, this very June. And their main competitor is union of uh, Flemish nationalists who are not so keen in supporting Ukraine and they do not want, and they actually are against all, uh, the idea of giving more money to Ukraine. Paradoxically, uh, this idea of taking money from Russia and use it for Ukraine might actually appeal to them, because then uh, the government might say, well, look, we do not spend uh, our taxpayers' uh, euros. We are actually spending Russia's own money to fight Russia, uh, without, uh, you know, using uh, the money of our citizens. Well, one point is, is, is pumping a bunch of dollars into Ukraine would not inflate the Ukrainian currency. It would have the exact opposite effect. It would strengthen the Ukrainian currency. Um, it's just a technical issue. Um, you know, what's happened so far is that Belgium has already used the taxes from uh, some of these assets and earmark them for Ukraine. The most mainstream proposal is right now is to take the earnings that these assets throw off and to use them as sort of a, you know, Ukraine gets that money as they earn, right? So as as the bonds and uh, other instruments that are held within pay out interest that, that Ukraine then um, receives that share. There's obviously a big debate about whether Ukraine gets the principal immediately as well, or how that's divvied out. There's those who say, well, we need to use the principle as a tool to try to lure Russia to peace negotiations because, you know, as their economy struggles and they have access to hard currency at some point in the future, offering them, you know, uh, some of the slice back could, could be a, a, a big incentive. I certainly think that's very unlikely under Putin's Kremlin, um, which is the only Kremlin I see being in power for the foreseeable future, barring some, you know, deus ex machina uh, event, well-placed lightning strike. But the, you know, um, 
if it were my opinion on it, that that is also probably the sort of best way to do it is say Ukraine gets the earnings from it. Uh, and then um, at some point there has to be some kind of accounting for all the damage that Russia has done. And then these funds can be released to help repay for that. Uh, but I would like to see that ultimately administered by the West in some sort of modern martial plan for Ukraine program where, you know, and I don't think it belittles Ukraine in any way or is a colonial position or anything like that, as some would argue to say, oh, well, Ukraine should just get all the money right now. You know, one can be as supportive of Ukraine as possible. And certainly, in my view, think that they are, uh, we are very right to support them against Russia's wanton and illegal war, which is what violated international law and principles in the first place in doing this. But at the same time, recognize the reality that there are still challenges of corruption and that putting not, I think, attack Attaching strings is the wrong word, but but guardrails uh, on it. You know, it's effectively a huge bowling ball of cash coming down. If the guardrails aren't there, then it risks going into the gutter. Um, so that's the analogy that I would use. This is one thing that I know in the United States, some of Ukraine's supporters, they argue that, well, yes, we, we spend all this money on Ukraine, but in fact, it's going to weapons manufacturers in Tennessee and, you know, people in, at Boeing and like in the North Northwest. And it's actually domestic spending, really. It's not even, doesn't even go to Ukraine technically. Like that's kind of how it's described. Is there, is there a way to pitch it that way in Europe or is that sort of distinctly American? It is also the way to pitch it in Europe. However, uh, I think in Europe, it would be more difficult to sell the idea that we use this money to boost our uh, defense and uh, military companies when uh, we need money to uh, fix infrastructure, health system, and all that. So I think this, this pitch is a little bit easier to sell uh, on the other side of the pond. But in Europe, the idea of using Russian money instead of the uh, taxpayers' money uh, would be, in my view, pretty marketable, simply because there is more money there. I very much doubt that we will see Russian assets seized in the next six months. But the main test would come uh, in February, when the G7 and the European Union are preparing for the summit uh marking the second anniversary of the russian invasion and uh logically they need to come up with at least a roadmap of uh what to do with the assets maximilian prefers not to speculate on when we can expect the west to seize the frozen russian assets since negotiations are still grinding on and a sense of inevitability could lead to complacency that causes even further delays um, of course, in the U.S. in particular, you have the you know big election risk uh, coming up in November that would probably see a very significant change in this approach. And even if it's not for, you know, I think that the reasons that the potential new Trump administration would change the approach have literally nothing to do with any of the principles that we just spoke about, whether it be law or understanding of the international system, but rather personalistic decision making. Um, you know, I would say I have supported this and advocated for it since 2022. Um, it is comforting 
exciting and good to see the Biden administration move that way. We also saw the British Foreign Secretary, uh, former Prime Minister David Cameron, also known as Lord Cameron of Chipping Norton now, because the British have a funny system about these things. And you can revive any politician's career by throwing them in the House of Lords. Um, but uh, so he, he came out and endorsed this back in December as well. But at the same time, of course, with the sort of difficulties that we've seen with Hungarian vetoes and uh, political gridlock in the U.S. over the last two months, I've been very disappointed by the lack of um, moves on, on other actions. So uh, I think if I were to say definitely I expect it to happen, that would be doing a disservice to those who are still advocating for it and and, and um, trying to get over some of these big hurdles um, and uh, self-inflicted wounds that, that the West has imposed on its own strategy so far. So we cannot be complacent and say this is a foregone conclusion. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.